This morning we begin a sermon series on the book of Exodus. If you look up the word Exodus in your dictionary or online dictionary, wherever you want to look it up, you'll probably read something like this, the movement of a lot of people from a place at the same time. The movement of a lot of people from a place at the same time. Or to put it simply, it means to exit. It means to exit. But it's an exiting of a large mass of people. That You've heard of the phrase mass exodus. It's a mass exit here of God's people from a land of slavery, the land of Egypt. And we're going to be looking at the book of Exodus for few uh, few weeks here, a number of weeks, and um, we ought to think of Exodus as one chapter of a five-chapter book. We ought to consider it as one chapter of a five-chapter book, namely the Pentateuch, or the five books of Moses, because it's a continuation of the book of Genesis, and we'll look at that momentarily. But for now, we're going to turn to our Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Let us now hear the word of the Lord. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt, with, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. 
Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. As far as the reading of God's holy word, may his blessing upon the preaching and teaching of it. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the last 400 years or so, the Exodus has been used to describe the experience of certain people, groups, For example, the motif of the Exodus was used in American history back in 1630 when the Puritan John Winthrop preached a sermon called A Model for Christian Charity. And in that sermon, he likened the Exodus story to the people crossing the Atlantic to find freedom in a new land. The crossing of the Atlantic by the Puritans was likened to the Exodus story. Most notably, the African slaves saw their experience in light of the Exodus story. Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers. And so they were sold into slaves too. They were slaves at the hands of slave owners and slave traders, like Joseph was a slave, and like Egypt was a slave. And so they saw their experience in the same way and allowed them to make sense of their situation and provided a blueprint for them for their deliverance. God would deliver them. You know what's interesting, though? Everybody uses the Bible to justify behavior. For even the slave traders and slave owners in antebellum America use the Bible to support their actions. They use the Exodus narrative to explain that they are the new Israel. They are the redeeming nation. So in the past, people have used the Exodus narrative to see their life experience in it, to put themselves in that story and see their experience through the lens of the Exodus. This is a fascinating book. A fascinating book as we examine this narrative. We're going to see how God indeed is the true deliverer of his people not a particular people group, but of his people, the offspring of Abraham, the seed of Jacob, the people of God, the Christian, the Christian. I said that this book is a continuation of the previous book, and indeed it is, because we have to ask the question, well, how did the Israelites end up in this situation to begin with? Well, we know that Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers. They sold him to the Ishmaelites. The Israelites sold Joseph to Potiphar, the Egyptian prince, and Joseph found favor with the prince and the people, and he became a servant of Pharaoh. In fact, he became Pharaoh's right-hand man. He found favor with Pharaoh. And God blessed Joseph greatly, and he found favor with God and man. 
And Egypt became rich and prosperous because of Joseph's wisdom, ultimately because God was with him. God was with him. At Genesis chapter 50, if you look in your Bible, just turn back probably a page or two. Genesis chapter 50, verse 15 and following, we see here what Joseph has to say regarding his brother's sin and trespasses against him and God's providence. We read, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message, message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of your servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am, am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. There was a famine in the land of Canaan that was wiping out peoples and groups. And God sent Joseph to prepare a place for Jacob and his sons to find refuge. And so jo Joseph was a savior type for the people of God. And now we read in our Bibles at Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Now what you don't see in the English translation is what is in the Hebrew uh, scriptures. And that is the word and. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. That and points to the previous chapter of the five-chapter book. Where we see here a continuation of what God is doing through the seed of the woman in Genesis 3, through the seed of Abraham in Genesis 12, through the seed of Jacob, the seed of Judah, the seed of Shem, and now we're going to see that seed continuing through Exodus, the seed ultimately being the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so as we look at chapter 1 here, and we see this continuation. We're going to look first at according to God's promise, Israel becomes a great people. This continuation begins with Israel becoming fruitful and multiplying. You see, the book of Genesis began with what? The creation of all things. And what was the creation mandate given to Adam and Eve? To be fruitful and multiply. And now we have the Israel of God. Beginning at chapter 1 of Exodus 1, the second chapter of the five-chapter book, where Israel is being fruitful and multiplying. And this is according to God's promise. They've been in, uh, in Egypt a total of 430 years. But from the time of Joseph's death 
to the time here of chapter 1, we have approximately 300 or so years. And we see Israel multiplying greatly, becoming a great power in a foreign land. Becoming a mighty people in a foreign land. And this is according to God's promise. God promised that he would make Abraham into a great nation. In fact, that's what Abraham means, a father of a multitude. In fact, turn with, me, turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 35. We just read this. If you're going through the Bible reading program, you probably just read this chapter. Verse 11, God tells Jacob, and God said to Jacob, verse 11, Genesis 35, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The command of God to Jacob to be fruitful and multiply. And now turn to chapter 46. Chapter 46, beginning at verse 3. God said to Jacob again, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So according to God's promise, they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. God was making a great nation there in a foreign land. And now we need to remember something here. We need to remember something. There was silence from the time of Joseph's death to the time of the new Pharaoh. You know, the, the Israelites in this particular period did not have the Bible did not have the written word of God. Moses isn't even born yet. And so how did they know of God's promise? How did they know of God's promise to, to be fruitful and multiply, to increase? How did they know the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Oral tradition. Father would sit down with sons and daughters and give the genealogy, give the promises of God. And so for many years, the Israelites had to pass down this oral tradition to their daughters and sons and grandchildren. Think about that for a moment. We, ha we have the word of God in our hands. We have God's revealed will in our hands. It wasn't spoken to you orally. It's written. God, by his grace and mercy, gave us his written will. They didn't have that at this time. And we need to keep that in perspective when we think about how they acted in the wilderness later on and how they viewed God. I will make you a great nation. The blessing of Abraham was upon Israel. God made them great. And God is making his people great today. His people are multiplying and increasing today. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? When Christ says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, 
Do you not think that has Old Testament thoughts, motifs behind that? Does it not have kingdom building behind that? Does it not have nation building behind that? That Israel, the true Israel, the church, will become great and mighty. Sinners blessed and adopted into God's family through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the offspring of Abraham. In Christ and through faith in him, we are justified or made right through the righteous one, Jesus, who is our great Savior, Mediator, and Leader. He is the one who builds his church, who multiplies his people, where we are called what? A holy what? Nation. A holy priesthood. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Today, God is building a holy nation a holy priesthood, a people multiplying according to his promise. According to his promise, a spiritual Israel, a new, true Israel, the people of God. According to his promise, Israel becomes a great people. And when God's people blossom and grow and multiply, the devil works overtime. The devil hates God and he hates his people, the people of God. And here we have introduced into the narrative at verse 8, a new king, Pharaoh, who oppresses Israel. Pharaoh oppresses Israel. Look with me in your Bible at verse 8 and following. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters or slave masters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Pharaoh sees that the people of God are growing and becoming mighty and powerful, and he is threatened. This is a a national security risk for Pharaoh. He fears the Israelites might become too strong for Egypt. And because of their strength, they form an alliance with Egypt's enemies and then turn against Pharaoh and Egypt altogether. And in order to to minimize the threat or to destroy the threat, 
Let's kill Israel's sons. Let's enslave them. Plan B or plan A? Which is going to be first? Well, plan A is first in Pharaoh's agenda. Let's, let's first enslave them. If that doesn't work, plan B. Let's kill Israel's sons. Such growth called, called for drastic measures for Pharaoh. He makes slaves of the people of Israel, demoralizing them, weakening them, placing heavy burdens on them. Remember what I said. They didn't have the word of God. They had oral tradition. And so they had to be reminded daily of God's promise. That God was with them. That God would build them up. And they had to be reminded of God's promise that they will once leave the land. Did you, did you hear that from Genesis 46 I read earlier? That I will be with you in Egypt, but I will get you out. And so they had to remember God's promise. The oral promise handed down to father, to son, to grandson. While they're being oppressed, while they are slaves, demoralized and weakened, but God, uh, Pharaoh's plan is no match for Israel because if we, and we read in the text at verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. <laughs> Pharaoh pours on the heat and God says, you think you're that? You think you're all that? You think you control my people and the prosperity of my people by your wicked hand? Think again. We often talk about types of Christ in the Old Testament. Well, Pharaoh is a type of Satan in the Old Testament. He is Satan's worker. He is a slave to Satan who deals shrewdly with God's people. The more Pharaoh oppressed and persecuted the Israelites, the more that they grew in number. And even at verse 13, they ruthlessly made people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick. They made their lives horrible. Horrible. And the same is true today. Christ is building his church today. A great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation is being called a saving faith, becoming sons and daughters of Abraham, sons and daughters of God, and the ancient foe, the devil, through secondary means like government officials, tyrannical powers, haters of God, woke mobs, hate the people of God because they hate God. Those who hate me, says the Proverbs, me being wisdom, the wisdom of God, love death. And we see the same thing happening today, do we not? As Christ builds his church, the enemy does not like it. He will work overtime to destroy the church, but God will not allow it. Because the church militants stands firm in the Lord and in the strength of his might and power. Just look in the book of Acts. 
what happened when persecution hit the Christians, the Christian Jews in Jerusalem. What happened? They fled. There was dispersion across the land. And when they dispersed, they brought the gospel. And the gospel spread throughout all the lands of Asia Minor. And how many numbers of souls were being saved right in the very narrative of great persecution of tyrannical powers of Caesar and his minions who were servants of Satan. We can be very pessimistic in times where where tyrannical powers are oppressing Christians, but they have nothing on the Lord Jesus Christ who is king. And he is building his church. And just like God built his church in the Old Testament, he's building his church today. And tyrannical powers have no power over Jesus. Paul Paul was going to church to church, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so we press on under the oppression of tyrannical leaders, under, uh, from those who hate God's people, the church. I mean, just think about China and Islamic nations. The church grows despite of great persecution. The underground church grows despite persecution in China. How is that possible? The power of God of salvation. By his word and spirit. And so we need to be in prayer. We need to look to the word and preach the word and teach the word and demonstrate the word and live lives according to the word. Against those oppressive powers. Against God's people. Pharaoh's oppression of the Israelites have nothing on God, have have nothing on the church of Jesus Christ. Because he will prevail. He will prevail. We see there already of God's promise when Israel became a great nation. We see Pharaoh being threatened and oppressing Israel, enslaving them. And now the narrative turns to two women who become saviors of Israel's sons. They save Israel's sons. An astonishing turn of of events when these women save Israel's sons, Shifra and Puah, midwives to the Hebrew women, and they are commanded to kill Israel's sons when they are born at the... when a Hebrew woman gives birth Plan A isn't working. And so the wicked Pharaoh, the wicked king, uh, resorts to plan B. Take extreme measures to put an end to Israel's growth. And he commands these two Hebrew midwives. Now it's uncertain whether they're Hebrew women or Egyptian women. But that need not concern us at this point. What should concern us is that they save Israel's sons. Why? Because they feared God. That is, they reverenced God. They loved God. They trusted God. How they heard of this God, the God of the Hebrews, the text doesn't say. 
Perhaps they heard about it, the oral tradition from the Hebrews themselves. But they would not allow the murder of these sons of Israel. Is not murder used for population control? Let's control Israel's population by killing the sons as they are born. You think full birth abortion is a new thing? You think full birth murder is a new thing? I mean, we can go on and on about our own day and age or the past few centuries. China's one-child policy to control population where when girls were born or a second child, they would be abandoned and thrown in the gutter. You can talk about abortion as population control. You can talk about the founder of Planned Parenthood whose goal was to abort black babies for population control. Things aren't altogether different today, are they? We see the same unrighteousness, ungodliness, wickedness today, and it should break our hearts. God used these two women to save Israel's sons. Did they lie to Pharaoh? Yeah. But did they save life? Oh, yeah. All sin is wrong, but not all sin is equally evil. To take life, the sons of Israel, was a great evil that these women would not involve themselves in. And what was the result of their obedience to God? God blessed these women, giving them families of their own. He blesses those who fear him, who trust in him, and obey him. This is throughout the Psalms. Those who fear the Lord, the Lord blesses. Those who trust the Lord, the Lord blesses. We ought to be more concerned about fearing God than fearing man. Pharaoh should have been fearing God. But he feared and reverenced Satan and the evil one. In verse 20, God dealt with the midwives well. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. A sign of blessing there for the Old Testament saints. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. Now plan C. Plan A and plan B didn't work. Now plan C. Maybe three times a charm. Which is interesting because for the Egyptians, the Nile River, the longest river in the world, was a shrine for the Egyptians. It was the place that guaranteed fertility among the Egyptians. It was a place that symbolized life for the Egyptians, and yet Pharaoh uses it as an instrument of death. Like Herod, like King Herod, 
who sought to destroy the Christ and made a decree that every son under two years old ought to be killed in and around Bethlehem. This too, Pharaoh did the same, kill every Israel's son. Yes, he oppresses and enslaves God's people, but he is really trying to oppress and eliminate God and raise himself up to be God. The kings of the earth conspire against the Lord and his anointed, says Psalm 2. And Pharaoh, the new king of Egypt, is seeking to set himself up and eliminate the seed who is to come. But God, according to his promise, will not allow the seed of Israel to be snuffed out. Because that seed is Jesus Christ. Israel was enslaved in Egypt, but they are not forgotten. They, were, they have not been abandoned. They were not forsaken. God sends a Savior. He will send a Savior into the land who will survive at the hand, by, by women. He will be raised in Egypt, and he will be prince of his people. His name will be Moses. In the New Testament, that New Testament theme is prominent. The, te- the, the motif of slavery, the theme of slavery. The oppression of slavery. Slavery from what? Slavery from sin, death, hell, Satan. A spiritual slavery. Sin is a heavy and bitter burden on the soul's of people, but God sends us a Savior, capital S, who saves us from the bondage of sin, death, and hell. He sets us free. He gives forgiveness of sins, eternal life, adoption into God's family, shepherds us, cares for us, for, for us loves us, never abandons or forsakens us. This is the great shepherd, Jesus who God will send to destroy the work of the devil altogether. This is who Jesus is, the true Savior, who rescued us while we were in the chains of sin and bondage, oppressed by the devil and hell. If you're taking notes, read Hebrews chapter 2. Read Romans chapter 6, and how the devil and sin put his people in bondage. Put God's people in bondage. But Christ came to free us from that bondage. To live in the freedom of his grace. To live as slaves of righteousness and not slaves to sin. Because of this truth, we now have peace with God. And we're going to see soon the, the Israelites crying out for peace. Crying out for God to intervene. In Exodus, we'll learn of God's amazing grace, and yet we'll learn of his long suffering love toward a rebellious, sinful people. We'll learn the way to life, the way to freedom, the way to worship our God through the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, the blood of the firstborn Son. 
who laid down his life as a ransom for many. We're going to learn about our great God who saves us from the oppression and tyranny of the devil and rescues us from our sins. He is God. He is the Lord Almighty. And through Jesus Christ, he will build his church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you have secured for us an eternal redemption through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of your people. And you are calling a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be one holy nation, holy priesthood, a royal nation, called out of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, that by your Spirit and Word, that we would not be slaves to sin, that we would not give our bodies over to slavery, to sin, but that by your Spirit and Word, you would help us to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to walk in the newness of life that you have created in our hearts through faith in Jesus Christ. And where there is sin in our lives, we pray that we would humbly come to you in repentance and faith, trusting solely in the blood of Jesus, the blood of the eternal covenant. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray for those who are living in oppression, spiritual bondage, who do not know what it means to have a conscience set free and at liberty by your grace. We pray for those who feel condemned or burdened or feeling like they're imprisoned. May you, O oh Lord, free them. Free them from that tyranny and bondage and fear of death. And transform their hearts to look to Jesus, the one who says, in me you will be free indeed. We pray this.